marginally a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate drone living in Eastern Europe, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian turned freelance book indexer and proofreader, also working on a novel while raising two boys with my husband and making PB&Js by the dozen. Hi, fellow Margin writers. We hope you're having a good summer. I know we're enjoying our break, but we're very excited and ready to get back to you in September. In the meantime, for July's episode, we're sharing our conversation with writer Jean Hannah Edelstein about the all too often unspoken realities of making a living, one of which is that it's not often done with writing. We also talk about the glories of being an underachiever at the day job while still using writing skills, how a rigid writing schedule doesn't work for everyone, and giving yourself permission to be a writer. Jean is a Brooklyn-based writer who's a frequent freelance contributor to many publications, including The Guardian, The Pool, and Elle. Her day job is in marketing, working with tech companies like Etsy, her current position. Her forthcoming memoir, This Really Isn't About You, about grief, family, immigration, love, cancer, and one very special colonoscopy, among other things, will be published by Picador in the UK in August 2018. That's next month, so pre-order. We first found Jean through her tiny letter thread, which we highly recommend. You can sign up for it and read more about her at jeanhannahedelstein.com and follow her on Twitter at jhedelstein. That's Hannah with an H at the end and Edelstein, E-D-E-L-S-T-E-I-N. Now, on to the interview. So our first question is always just about kind of what is your day job? What are the creative projects you have? And how do you how do you find balance between those? Sure. So um, my day job is I work for Etsy, the uh, e-commerce company, as a senior editorial manager on the seller side. So that means specifically I work on making content for uh, people who sell on Etsy. The pe- there's a different team for people who shop on Etsy. Um, and I've been here for um, not for very long. I've only been here for about four months prior to this. I've been working in tech as an editor since uh, 2012. So I've worked for a couple of other tech companies, in particular in music streaming. So I worked for SoundCloud and Spotify. So that's, that's what I do um, to make a living. And then the rest of the time, I guess I've been writing um, as a freelance writer since 2007, I think was when I really got started. I was living in London at the time, so I started writing for The Guardian at that point. And yeah, it's just kind of like rolled on from there. And I think I've been lucky to be able to kind of develop a situation where I can balance having a having a full-time day job with writing. And I think, I mean, a key to that has been probably that I'm not that ambitious in my full-time day job compared to some people. So sometimes... Um, I feel like I'm a little bit of an underachiever in the tech world, but I think that's okay because I have other things that I do outside the world of tech. And typical follow-up question that we always ask as well, because one of the things we sort of object to is maybe that this idea that you should always be trying to quit your day job or like you're sort of a failure as a writer if you have a day job or something. Um, So one of the things we try to talk about is also uh, what do you think that you get in terms of your writing from your day job? Well, I mean, the number one thing I get for my day job is health insurance. So I can't quit my day job. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's really, I think that's something that people probably don't appreciate. And I guess one thing that sort of rankles me sometimes is writers who kind of, um, who don't do other things, things beyond writing or very often have partners who can provide them with health insurance and also with like a consistent, 
you know, income so that they know that they're covering their rent or whatever. No one ever talks about that. Um, but in my case, I've had to be that person for myself. And so, yeah. So, I mean, I think like people saying that, like, even if um, I have a book coming out this year, even if the book was wildly successful and made into a film, which I'm sure won't happen, but I still can't conceive of a situation in which I can quit my day job um, because I have, which the book is about, I have a health condition, which means I have to have access to great medical care. And it's not, it's the only affordable way of doing it is to work for a larger company. So, but yeah, in terms of what I get from, for my writing from my day job, I suppose is, I mean, I think I'm someone I did when I lived in the UK because of the national health service there, I did freelance for a while but I found the stress of having to make ends meet. Admittedly, it was around 2008, which was a particularly bad time to be freelancing, but the stress really undermined my ability to be creative in any way. So I felt like I was spending so much time scrounging for work um, that was not well paid and then panicking because I didn't, you know, wasn't going to be able to pay my rent every month or whatever. That didn't make me have great ideas or, or make good work. And so for me, I think that that was around the time when I first started on the path, which has gotten me to where I am now of working in sort of like marketing editorial, basically, so that um, I'm using my skills. I think working as a copywriter or an editor in marketing has definitely made me think about writing in different ways. Um, but I'm also able to like ring fence my creative work so that actually I'm not dependent on that work to make a living. And as long as I'm not dependent on that work to make a living, I think I, I do better creative work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Are there specific, maybe specific things that you do in order to make that happen? Or is it just that the nature of your creative work and the nature of copyright, I've done some copywriting. So the nature of that is they're just different enough that you don't have to employ like witchcraft rituals to keep them separate. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think they are, you know, they are very different. I think I first started really working as a copywriter in 2000, I'm trying to remember now, 2011, I joined an ad agency as their copywriter. That was interesting because um, I had been trying to get a copywriting job for a while because I was working as a journalist um, with no luck. And then this agency for their job application, instead of looking at a resume, did a writing test. And because of that, they brought me in and I thought that was for an interview. And I think that's very interesting because in since then, um, when I've been in the position of hiring copywriters, like I'm always kind of err on the side of people who are really good writers can figure out copywriting, but people who have come up as through and, you know, advertising or whatever as copywriters are not necessarily actually that good at writing. So um, obviously I have a strong bias in favor of people who are more like me, but <laughs> Um, but I did find once I started like copywriting, I used to joke that like as a journalist, I got paid by the word and as a copywriter, I got paid to write as few words as possible. So I think it definitely made me a more concise and efficient writer and just made me think about writing in different ways that I hadn't had, to, I hadn't been doing prior to that. And I think it also just made me, I think having that kind of intellectual stimulation at work was surprisingly good for me in terms of I would get home and feel jazzed to do my own writing in a way that when I was just trying to only do my own writing, I didn't really feel. I will say that um, one way I feel slightly disappointed if I could go back is I might um, have trained to do something else in university or post-university because now I've kind of realized that like I ended up becoming a copywriter and an editor because that was the skill that I happened to have. But I think I would be happy in lots of other different kinds of jobs and, and then also writing. 
So that would be one piece of advice to somebody who, you know, who wants to be a writer is don't discount establishing yourself in a non-writing career as well. Yeah, I think that there's two things that we sometimes talk about on here. Uh, one is that I think there is this accepted wisdom that you should be like writing adjacent if you want to be a serious writer or something like that. And I'm, like my job, I do write like a lot of emails, but I'm not writing anything that creative right now uh, at work. But I think that's sort of nice because I get to sort of save my words for myself. And plus, I don't have that sort of financial pressure that you were talking about. Um, and the other thing that we were sort of we've talked about before is that it's so nice when like whether you feel like your days of success or failure is not just about your creative work, but you can also get something from a different a different role. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me as well, I'm not a person who is great at spending tons and tons of time working alone. Um, I like, I don't think um, I've taken the test. I'm sort of like on, I'm marginally more introverted than extroverted, but I think, and so definitely like when I'm in an office, I need to like have some time and space to myself. But at the same time, I like interacting with people. Um, and I think when I was working from home entirely, I got pretty depressed. So that's another another factor. Like, I think that some people have this kind of view of, like, what I would call a purist view of writing, that, like, you should be in your shed on your own all the time or else you're not trying hard enough. And it just, you know, that works really well for some people, but it doesn't work for me. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you mentioned your new book, which we're excited about because we've been following your tiny letter um, and newsletter for a really long time. So maybe just tell us about the book and uh, where people can pre-order it or get it. Sure. So the book is called This Really Isn't About You, and it's a memoir. And I sort of have been writing it for the past, I guess it's, it was sort of a four-year process of writing it, which is something that kind of um, incorporates um, I mean, one nice thing about the way that people write today is, it, is that I've been sort of getting feedback on the book or the content of the book throughout writing it because some of it incorporates essays that I've written and published. Some of it is, you know, extracts um, from newsletters that I've sent out and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, so it's being, it's sort of, I worked it into a cohesive um, narrative over the last like maybe year and a half and it's being published by Picador in the UK on August 23rd and you can order it on Amazon or from an independent British bookseller. <laughs> okay, cool. And does it have a U.S. release? It doesn't have a U.S. release yet, so um, we're trying to sell it here, but so far, no luck. So we'll see. I'm sure our podcast is going to help with that. <laughs> Do you want to ask our Twitter question, Megan? Yeah, so one of the things... Well, one of the things that we have talked about a lot and is the reason we started the podcast in the mm -hmm. first place was this idea that writers who have day jobs should be very secretive about their day jobs and it's bad publicity or readers don't want to know that their favorite writer has a day job. Anyway, for whatever reason, there's just no, not a conversation about, there's just not a lot of openness, right, about writers who do other things and there are a lot of them out there and uh so when you wrote what you did on twitter we were both just we felt like vindicated and it was really exciting because um well we just completely agreed and so i was just curious like if you could talk a little bit more about your perspective on writing and being open about doing other things as well and then maybe what are some of the conversations that you have heard or been having around it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you can strike a balance. Like, I don't, I'm totally open about how I, how I actually make a living. I don't, I don't put it in my Twitter bio, for example. So it's like, in as much as I have a small, like, public persona or public following, it's focused on my writing, not on the fact that I'm an editor at Etsy. 
Um, but if anyone asks, then obviously like I don't hesitate. I'm very uh, upfront about that. Um, you know, and I think um, anyone who's been like following me in any way for a while would know this about me. I think, yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, I think there's just this sort of desire for art to be very pure and like, un, you know, unimpeded by capitalism. But the truth is that, you know, unless you have a trust fund or a very wealthy partner, most people can't do that. And like, you know, like most even people who I worked in a literary agency 12 years ago. And one of the things I found striking then where I really learned was like how many of the writers there who were represented by, you know, some of the top agents in the UK and who had, you know, very solid writing careers still had day jobs. Because the truth is, even if you get like a decent sized advance for one book, then um, stretching that, you don't know when you're going to write your next book, stretching that out over five or 10 years can put you in actually a very bad financial position. So, um, you know, many writers are, even if they're not working in, a, in an unrelated field, many writers are teachers or they're doing copywriting and stuff like that. But yeah, I just think there's, I mean, obviously there's a lot, I think Twitter is a place where there's a lot of interesting conversations, but also a lot of pretense. And so I think um, folks just don't want to, they, you know, admit the truth because they, you know, it's sort of like high school, but there's this like perception amongst writers that like, acknowledging that you're doing anything other than like pursuing your art in a very pure way, like undermines the quality of your work, which is just, just not true. But yeah, it does seem to me that people spend a lot of time trying to sort of promote that image about themselves. And I mean, and I, you know, I do think it has like, it can have a very negative effect. For example, writing fellowships are really only designed for people who don't have day jobs. And I think that's a huge shame because actually the people who do have day jobs probably, you know, in many respects, need more access to writing fellowships than others. Um, maybe not from a financial perspective, but certainly like the opportunity to like take space and actually focus on writing could be like, you know, it's hugely beneficial to someone who is otherwise eking it out in the mornings and evenings before and after work. But the way that they're designed, you know, most fellowships, you need to take at least two weeks and, you know, most people in the U.S. anyway. I'm lucky I get a bit more holiday time, but like most people only get two weeks of paid vacation anyway. And so that kind of like um, rules them out. So yeah, stuff like that, I think is a real shame that like there's, you know, an elements of the community or industry, which are very much designed around this idea of someone being a full-time writer. And then, you know, it can be very, very wearing. I mean, I became very depressed when I was a full-time writer because of what I, I mentioned earlier, because of my financial stress. And I think that's a shame too, if people kind of get themselves into that, because they think they can't do something else at the same time and it you know it wears them down yeah well and I think you know the fact that writing isn't exactly the most top high paying position in the <laughs> world uh definitely is a, a huge factor and it's kind of a two-edged sword right I mean um I think you know financially it is really hard the idea of making it as a freelance anything to be perfectly honest because that's what my day job is is um, and, and it's hard and it's a lot of work, but at the same time, like it makes for better art. I mean, if every, you know, we talk about it's the purity of art, but if it's all being written by people with enormous trust funds cool. or spouses with enormous trust funds, just exactly how, how much art is there if it's all that and it's all the same. And there's been a big conversation in publishing about the problems with having, you know, the problems with this lack of diversity and, la and lack of perspectives when you have everybody is all like East Coast 
wealthy people who can afford to sit around and write and produce this quote literary art. So it's like the writing needs a day job and the day job needs the writing. But at the same time, we want writing to pay more. And it's a, it's a hard. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing. Like, writing just doesn't pay. Like, and I think that's the thing that I've kind of like, we still have fantasies of massive advances and like, you know, you, there's, are always rumors of the person who gets $3 a word or whatever. And like, you know, but that's basically no one. The rest of us are just slogging away for not very much money. Um, and it is, a, you know, it does have to become a labor of love at that point because they're, you know, in principle, your time could be worth more. So, yeah, I mean, one other thing that I find kind of frustrating is the frequent narratives of like, often you see like authors biographies where they're like so-and-so wrote this book and like he used to be xyz like he used to like work in an ice cream store and you know move houses and like be an accountant and like so that is this kind of like enduring narrative of like writing saves you from um other forms of labor and it's just not the case and i often find funny with you know because you could say like Jean, you know, Jean wrote this book and previously she was like a Starbucks barista and like worked in a pub and, you know, we can list all of the jobs that I had when I was like at university or whatever that doesn't publishing. I and mean, this is my second book and neither of them has rescued me from um, the, you know, normal having a normal job. So I think kind of putting that aside would be, would be healthy for people because I just like, I just know that like I've met a lot of writers who feel like they're, you know, they're not succeeding or they're like not trying hard enough because they're distracted by these kinds of narratives of like real success is measured by not having to do anything else. Yeah, I agree. And I think, uh, well, it's just like one of our big bugbears and Megan and I talked about it so much that we decided to start a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it, it's so hard to find any information out. I mean, Olivia talks about she has these Google alerts that are supposed to send her information on, um, you know, writers with day jobs. And all it is is this writer quit his day job. Exactly. Too. Yeah. Like everyone wants like that's the that's living the dream. But it's just not actually a dream. And the reality is that, of it is like this writer quit his day job. And like now he's in terrible debt. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Like, yeah. We'll never, you know, like we'll never retire. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just crazy. And then, but then on the other hand, right? So do you find that there is some pushback on the other side from a day job wanting you to be exclusive to the day job and not do something else on the side? So I think that goes back to what I said earlier in terms of I'm probably not like, I probably don't come over as that ambitious. I think I'm lucky. I'm don't just think I'm lucky. I know I'm extremely lucky that I've managed to kind of, um, develop a career where the kind of expertise that I have is something that like companies need, but at the same time, they're not looking for me to say, move into like senior leadership or something like that. And so, I mean, like my most, my job prior to Etsy, when I was like working, when I was writing my book, I was writing marketing emails for Spotify and that was, I was probably a little bit underemployed there. I mean, I definitely was like, I like it was not, the most, um, it was not a challenging job, however, and like, you know, there are a lot of people at Spotify who are super high powered, but I was lucky to have a boss there who like needed someone to do that job, was happy to pay me a reasonable amount. Plus I had the health insurance that I needed and he thought it was great that I was writing a book. So like we would have our like weekly meetings and he would just like ask me how the book was going because he knew that I was like, you know, the marketing emails were going well. And so I think that's the thing is, yeah, I did kind of make a 
decision at a certain point to make my writing more of a priority, which means that maybe compared to some people who are my peers in these companies, I don't make as much money or I don't have as much like power within the company. But that's, you know, that's okay. And working for Etsy is great because it's obviously a company that's all about like helping people achieve creative goals. And so everyone here is doing something creative outside of work, um, much more creative than me for the most part. And so it's very much, you know, it's very much a place where the fact that I am writing is something that they think is great. Um, I'm definitely much busier here. Like this is definitely, I'm definitely, they're definitely working me harder, which is probably good for me. Um, but yeah, ultimately I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's like, I've, been, I've just been fortunate in finding roles where I'm not challenged about the fact that I'm doing other work outside. You know, obviously I think if I was working in for more kind of corporate companies, that might be more of an issue. I don't think I could necessarily go and work for American Express and feel the same level of um, enthusiasm from my doing things outside of work. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I was, I'm in a more corporate job, but uh, I don't, I also think there's like this corp pervading corporate myth that you always have to be, it's like up or out, right? Like you always have to be excelling at everything or you're failing at everything. And I just think like, I think it's actually really, there are a lot of people for lots of various reasons that uh, do their job well, but aren't necessarily interested in going to the next level for whatever reason. Right. And that doesn't get the same recognition. That's totally, and that's like totally fine. And there are a million reasons why people don't want to, you know, like, I don't want to, like, I don't want to travel constantly. I don't want to work 70 hours a week, et cetera, on, or for a company. Like I probably work 70 hours a week between being at work and writing, but like, that's my choice. Um, and yeah, and I'm okay with that. And I think when I first started out in tech, it was kind of hard to sort of square that because, Honestly, it was, um, you know, especially startups, there's, you know, people are like very hungry um, into helping each other aside. And like, so to just be like, hey, I'm going to do this thing that I'm good at and I'm going to do it well, but I'm not going to be like starting my own company can, you know, can make people a little bit suspicious. But I think I've just been lucky to be able to, as I said, I think because I've worked basically all the companies I work for are companies that um, make products for creative people, they're really pretty happy to have someone who is, is making creative work be part of the team. There was a piece a couple of years ago in, I don't know, I'll look it up and put it in our show notes, Olivia, but um, it was in praise of maintainers, I think was the sort of headline. And it was the idea that, that our culture is so focused on entrepreneurs and quote innovation that we forget that we need people behind the scenes, just keeping things working and yeah. not trying to move up. I'm happy, I'm happy to be one of those people. I mean, I, uh, I'm just remembering I was interviewed for a job a couple of years ago with a, it uh, turned out to be a bad move. So <laughs> a company I went to work for for six months and then I got laid off, which was a relief. But anyway, and in the interview, they were like, what are your ambitions? And I was like, well, I want to work for you, this company. And so then I said something like, oh, you know, like maybe I'll start my own company in the future, which was not really true. And the guy was like, why aren't you doing it now? And I was like, well, do you want me to work for you or not? <laughs> um, um, yeah, I think, well, sort of on that note, or like, I guess more is like a technical question, but we're really into people's schedules on this show. So uh, when do you, like, how do you fit your writing in? Like, what's your sort of writing routine? Oh my God, I have no routine. It's totally a mess. <laughs> Um, which I, I mean, I think I probably have a little bit of uh, 
an attention deficit disorder. My mom is an educational psychologist. She basically thinks that I've always had one. I think it's never, you know, I've never been formally diagnosed. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not organized at all. I have to be doing multiple things at once or I get a little crazy. So yeah, I mean, I always hear about people who are like, I, I wake at six and then I write in my morning pages or whatever. And I'm just not that person. Like, I think a lot of my writing process is just thinking about stuff. I will say that like, when I actually do sit down to write, I write very quickly. And I think that's because, but for every hour I spend actually writing, I'm probably spending eight hours in various ways mulling over what I'm going to write. Um, So I think that's a very important part of it. In terms of actually like when I do sit down and do that writing, I mean, I write a lot on my phone actually, like when I'm on, when I'm commuting. So that's important. Um, you know, I don't, I write when I'm taking lunch breaks and stuff like that. I probably, you know, I'll sometimes have a Google doc open and when I'm, you know, taking a 10 minute break at work to clear my head, then I'll do a little bit of writing then. And then, you know, in the evenings and weekends, um, I also don't have kids. So obviously I think that's, um, a significant um, thing that gives me more flexibility. Um, my husband is a painter, so he also, you know, likes to, he has a studio in our, in our apartment. So that works well as well, that like some evenings, like he'll paint and I'll write. And that's good that we kind of, I think if I was married to someone who was not, didn't have a creative thing, it probably would be a bit more challenging in terms of him feeling like I was being, I wasn't present enough. Yeah, no, I think that helps a lot to have. I think that's one of the things, again, Megan and I talk about a lot is that our partners like either are creative or just really supportive of the creativity and give us the space or the time because I think that's obviously really important. It's also a relief. I think you might be one of our first people who isn't like I'm on this really rigid schedule and uh, I waver between starting a really rigid schedule and then not being able to fulfill it and then just feeling a bit like a failure. So it's like, well, exactly. I mean, and I think that's the thing is that like, I've definitely tried to have a rigid schedule from time to time. And like, I just can't. And it's exactly every time I've been like, all right, here's my writing area and my notebook and whatever, and like setting the alarm. And then I just never quite fulfill it. Um, and then I spend a lot of time and emotional energy feeling bad about myself rather than just saying like, you know, sometimes I did have actually a boyfriend years ago who was like very rigid. Um, he was a screenwriter and he, um, he would, he would literally say to me like, okay, now I'm not going to see you this week because I'm going to work on my screenplay. And I was just like, why should you choose between me and like your screenplay? Like, I don't see how this equation works. Cause for me, that was just not something that I ever would have done. Unsurprisingly, that relationship didn't work out, but yeah, you know, it was, some people can be very rigid and I'm just not one of those people. And I think again, similar to the whole like pretending not to have to work for a living thing. I also think, um, too much celebration of people's very rigid writing habits can make people feel like they shouldn't be trying because they can only find 10 minutes in their day or whatever. So yeah, I'm here for saying like, it's, you know, yeah, sometimes I'm like, well, if I was rigid and organized, like maybe I would have written like three books this year, but you know what? Like I'm not, so I didn't and that's okay. Well, and so my process is similar in that I probably spend eight hours thinking about something for one hour of writing. And when, and I do have a routine, not by choice, but by necessity. And it's, it is really hard when I get up at six 30 and then don't have anything to do because I don't have anything to write yet. Cause I'm not ready. So. Yeah. I mean, and obviously basically I'm just kind of very much like do what works for you kind of person about this. I don't think there's any 
um, prescription. And, you know, sometimes especially very successful writers would be like, well, I do X, Y, and Z. And I just don't think that necessarily can be applied to anybody else. And certainly like close friends of mine who are very successful writers, I would say, I mean, I can't speak for them per se, but I'm, I don't think they necessarily have super rigid schedules either. So sometimes, you know, I think they go through phases as well. One thing that does work well for me is um, because I'm lucky that I get a fair amount of vacation days is taking da- taking a block of days and just writing. Like that has been, for the book especially, I did that a couple of times and that was very helpful. But even then I would say, like, I remember I took a week once and like I only wrote for three days of that week and I was like, oh, what's wrong with me? And like, you know, it didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> There's no point in in trying to be someone you're not. Uh, yeah, that was going to be my question was, obviously, you're not somebody who's like, yeah, just write whenever you feel like it, but you've never written something. Like, you do manage to put out things pretty regularly. Obviously, you're freelancing, plus you've written two books. Um, so I was going to say, okay, but, you know, you're not just writing probably 10 minutes a day. So how do you kind of, do you just go and write really hard when you get the right feeling or when it's sort of ready in your mind or, yeah. I think that's it. Like most of my freelance pieces are pretty short turnarounds. So like most of the pieces that I write for the Guardian, I write them in maybe in an hour or 90 minutes. So I think, yeah, that's part of it. And then, yeah, I probably, yeah, I think when I actually, though I probably spend relatively little time at a desk compared to some people, I usually can like really turn out a lot of words in one go. So I guess that's my, I guess that's my main technique. Yeah. And like, yeah, with the book, I definitely like, you know, had had a week when I wrote probably about 15,000 words. So yeah, technique and superpower, it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess, are you working on new projects now? I'm curious. Yeah, um, I I am probably working on another book, which I'm not really ready to talk about. But like, hopefully, that's going to be in um, a new proposal so that basically that I can sell around the time the the book comes out. that's the plan. And then I have a couple of other things in the, um, in the works potentially with some other publications. So I'm, I've, you know, I've been doing, I've been freelancing now for 11 years. So I finally reached a point where editors will reach out to me with ideas rather than vice versa, which feels like, you know, a, a, a lucky moment in my career to have reached, but, you know, and also because I'm, because I have this, you know, relatively busy job as well. That's a pretty good level for me. Yeah, that makes sense. It sounds like that that's meant to be a turning point, definitely, when you have that relationship with editors. Oh, I just wanted to ask, what makes you, what motivates you? Like, how did you kind of get started writing? How do you keep going? Like, why, like, why are you doing it? Yeah, I mean, I think I've just always been like a teller of stories from the time I was really small, which I think is probably the case with a lot of writers. And so I actually, I really didn't have like confidence in my writing when I was younger. So when I was initially starting out my career, one of the reasons why I worked for a literary agent was that I felt like I was really interested in writing, but I didn't think I was good enough to be a writer myself. And so I thought, oh, I'll work in an industry that's like, you know, supporting writers. And I mean, I remember saying that in my job interview and then like nodding approvingly when I was like, oh, I'm not good enough to be a writer. So I want to like support good writers. Um, and then actually what happened was I got fired <laughs> after a couple of years. <laughs> my boss was a pretty... Um, I'm trying to think of the right word. Difficult, let's say, difficult person to work for, and it didn't work out. She fired me, and it happened by coincidence to be around the time that some friends, friends of a friend, were launching a magazine. And so I pitched them a piece, and they published it, and they were like, "This is fantastic." 
And then I, it sort of like started from there. And so then I just felt like I had always been writing stuff. I'd always had a blog and stuff like that, but it just felt like the permission I needed to take it a bit more seriously. But the permission, like I would say, that is something that I've continued to struggle with a bit. I think also like I was always a huge reader of fiction and I don't write fiction. And so I think um, that was something that kind of held me back for a while was sort of feeling that like, I wasn't good enough because I just have never been a natural writer of fiction. So come like overcoming that kind of like negative bias against my work was something that took a while to do. I still like yeah. to write a novel, but I just don't think I'm very imaginative. So. <laughs> I think, well, I'm writing a novel and I have exactly the same feelings, so we won't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> But how did you convince yourself? I'm like, I'm curious about a little bit more about this permission piece, because I do think it's something that affects a lot of people, especially the day job writers, right? Um, uh, Because it's like, oh, well, I'm really just like a whatever, a sales clerk or whatever people do, right? Um, So I guess, can you tell us a little bit more about how you, like how you continually give yourself permission to write? Well, I mean, I think now I've reached a point where like I'm published pretty regularly. And so I have that level of confidence about it. I would say, yeah, earlier on. So I like published something in my friend's magazine. And then um, I guess then I started hanging out with other writers more. I think that was helpful in like creating community of people who were also interested in writing and doing similar work to me. Then, I mean, honestly, the first time I was published in The Guardian, it was because my friend met the editor of The Guardian book blog out at the pub. And she basically emailed me and was like, oh, this guy is interested in ideas. And so I got in touch with him and started writing for them. And, you know, I mean, that's just dumb luck. And it's also just, I suppose, like networking, like finding, you know, sort of like knocking on doors until someone says like, okay, like I'll give you a shot. So I think like every, every publication kind of like helped me to kind of like build that confidence that like, yeah, I was doing something that was real. That said, like when I originally was pitching in the beginning of my career, I would get really devastated every time I was rejected. And I think that was a big problem. I think some people are very good at just kind of being like, okay, whatever, moving on. Whereas, yeah, I would, you know, I would get rejected once and never pitch again, which was probably a mistake. So how did you learn to deal with that? I mean, you, you just said it's taken 11 years to get to the point where you have work coming to you rather than you going out and looking for it. um, If that's a fair assessment. So where did you find the persistence to do it? I don't know. I mean, I think probably, I mean, I think probably actually like having the day job gave you some of the confidence and that it was like, okay, my, I think, you know, when I would be very devastated it would be because like my like ability to live was riding on me getting like landing pitches. Whereas once I started saying, okay, I need to have like a full-time hustle. Um, it meant that a full-time gig rather and a side hustle. It meant that I could kind of like take it a bit easier. Like if I didn't hear back from editors, it was just not the end of the world. So I think, yeah, that's what worked for me. I think obviously it's not a necessarily a model that works for everyone. Some people, but in my case, that made me feel like a bit more comfortable about, about doing that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, and just kind of, I think writing whenever I did get the opportunity to do it meant that I built up like a larger body of work, which just gave me like more experience and also made more people aware of the writing that I was doing. Makes sense. Do you have any other advice? Like, I think it's, I think from your journey, it's just really interesting. Like, I think it might be useful for people who are looking to get started, especially in sort of personal essay or nonfiction essay writing. Um, so if you have any more advice that you can give them, we can wrap up with that probably. Mm. <laughs> yeah. 
let's see. Personal essays are an interesting one because I think what is really, to really make them work, you just have to make sure that they have some resonance beyond you. And I think that's not always easy to do or certainly not easy to do initially. I think so reading great memoirists like uh, David Sedaris is one who I started reading when I was very young and I think he's just fantastic. Vivian Gornick is another one. Um, she does great personal writing. Um, I think that's, that's very important. And I think there's like an element of self-deprecation that makes them work, but just also kind of like getting at things so that even if your experience is very distant from someone, the, the tangible aspects of your experience are very different from someone else's experience, but they can still feel that, like that they understand the feeling in the, in the essay. I think that's what really makes them makes it land. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of like it's writing with empathy, I suppose. Um, writing with empathy for your reader. Think about, like, how they will feel or how you want them to feel or, like, what feeling you, what feeling you want them to recognize. And actually, that's probably the starting point of an essay rather than necessarily what happened. I think that's probably a good piece of also even for fiction, right? Like, yeah, a novel or anything else is not really about what happens or what the plot is, but that sort of feeling that you want the reader to kind of end up with. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of like what happens matters less than like how they feel. And that's what makes that's that's what makes work that people are excited about and that people really, really care about. And, you know, and I think there's a lot of that kind of work in the I remember like back in high school, I used to say that like, I just wanted to be one of those people who wrote for the New Yorker about cheese and made it really interesting. And I think it's true that like, if you really, I haven't achieved that dream yet, but um, if you're a really good observational writer, you can make anything interesting as long as you capture that, um, that common emotion. Yeah. I think the New Yorker is the best at that, where if you really have time to go through it, it's like, I don't really care about this. And then you read it and it's like the whole world needs to know about this essay, whatever it is. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. That is a great model as well. Yeah, I would say actually another recommendation would be just like there's some like really great New Yorker collections of essays from over the years, like the New Yorker collection of food and drink and stuff like that. Those are if you don't have access to a library with many years of New Yorkers knocking around, those can be a great resource as well. John McPhee's book, Draft Number Four, is really good, too, because he talks about his process of writing those kinds of pieces for the New Yorker. Yeah, I haven't read that, but I'll check it out. Cool. Okay. Well, we will let you get over to your meeting. We do know what that is like. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much, Jean, for coming on our show. And we will be releasing it in the summer, when July, I think. Great. Well, I look forward to hearing it. All right. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. again. Well, thank you so much. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rinkaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.